We have Clint back for another episode. So, Clint, how you doing? Doing fantastic. Happy to be back. Looking forward to it. All right. Excellent. We're happy to have you here. Very busy past couple weeks. (laughs) Thanks, man. Oh, yeah. Well, what you been up to? We can do. How about you do your introduction as to what's been going on in your world, and then I'll follow you up. Okay, sure. Sounds good, buddy. We, uh, we've had kind of back-to-back shows. Uh, we vended a show out in St. Louis last weekend, vended in Indianapolis today. I just drove home and ran in, hopped on this. Um, and been two very, very good shows for us. And then, of course, I mean, how busy the week is in between those shop and things, uh, things are going well and things are going hectic for sure. But uh, I guess uh, it's being busy is a good thing. Not something I'm going to complain about at all. Oh yeah, so, no, making me happy. All right, glad you're glad things are going well. So last time we talked, you had mentioned about all the, the I don't want to say trials and tribulations, but this would happen with anybody that's doing a move, and you moved your animals into your shop. Have, have how's like things coming out of cycling and brumation and all that? working out for you it's it's interesting (laughs) to to say the least um i I will say i mean going through this this winter i because i do have a you know a small number of ball pythons and with those i was dealing with more stuck sheds than i've ever dealt with before and it's because i'm in a much drier environment than uh than where, where i kept everything previously so I've got that on that, and now we're waking some stuff up, and uh, we're finding. Uh, I had one black rat snake kind of perish out of nowhere. I really don't see why on that one, but we're just figuring out how everything's going to work now in these new rooms, and I think it's coming together. But figuring out a few of the nuances with getting temperatures just right, getting yep. humidity levels just right. Uh, you know what's going to work here, what's not going to work there. Uh, I've moved the Asians out of the room I initially had them in because of where that's located in the building. It tended to become one of the hotter rooms of the building uh, last summer. So they've been shifted and they're more centralized now, but uh, it's, I, while I still think it'll be a successful year in terms of breeding, I don't expect it to be one of the most stellar years I've ever had in terms of production, just because I think, a lot of things are either going to need to have a full year to cycle. Yep. Um, we also, we, we've got a lot that we just want to put more weight on. You know, that there's not been mm-hmm. too many of my animals that get years off. And I think that this year is going to be a year that several of them are going to get that year off just to kind of rebuild and get some more attention put on. Yeah, that's, that's totally fair. Uh, anytime you move your critters from one place to another, I mean, it, it's just the nature of the beast. It's just not the same for you, for them, for everything. So uh, I hope ultimately it pans out for you in the end. But, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. I appreciate it. I think we'll be just fine. I just, like I said, just give that full 12-month cycle, and I think we'll be in business. All right. So anything else new in your world, or is that pretty much I mean, not that that's not much, but you know what I mean. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that is my world. Right? That's it? Yeah, that's a, <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a constant ongoing thing. And, uh, you know, we got a few weeks. 
I'll say a few weeks off in air quotes uh, mm-hmm. from shows, but then we've got Tinley coming up. Yep. So we'll see everybody yeah. out there. Yeah, I, I thought I was going to be able to make it to Tinley, but it turns out um, the following week is a pretty big conference for all my students, and I thought that I could swing it, but in retrospect, I don't think so. But um, I know I'll be able to make it to Schaumburg, I think, in the summertime. Uh, so not exactly Tinley, but it's like Tinley light, or maybe it is the alternative Tinley. I don't know. I haven't been there. So. <laughs> like, the off brand. Yeah, there you go. I love it. Uh, but no, in, in, in my world, things are, um, obviously coming out of brumation. I breed my false water cobras historically end of December, beginning of January. So. If those were going to take, you know, now's when I start to see some swelling and, and obvious uh, behavioral shifts. And when a false water cover is gravage, they become these ravenous beasts that want to kill and eat everything in sight. And I currently have one, two, three, four females that are doing that. So um, I'm kind of hopeful that we're going to have another pretty good year with the false water cobras. Uh, and other than that, things are coming out of brumation for me. I purposely put things down kind of late because I knew that my January and February were going to be two pretty hectic months. Um, so everything's coming out in March. Uh, so uh, starting tomorrow, actually, I'll be pulling everybody out and getting that up and running. I've got a kid doing hognose snakes for their thesis. And now that the... Um, Dipsadid book is done. I'm like basically going to be doing heterodon nonstop for the next two years. So I'm, I'm really excited to get rock and roll with those guys. And then on the book front, uh, some exciting news. Um, the book is now done, 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 done. Um, Russ sent it off to, uh, the publisher to print a couple copies. We get those copies in hand kind of go through, highlight issues, find the issues, kind of with the final edit, fix them, and then the book goes to print. So this is happening. Those of you who have heard me talk about this for the past two years, absolutely will be happening. Um, that's all I'm going to say about it until I have it in my hand, though. So, But there have been a couple people that have messaged me asking, like, what the hell is going on with the book? So that's what's going on with the book. And I can honestly say I have learned a lot on um, the next one will definitely be a much more fluid process than this first one. Uh, but no, that's pretty much been it for my world. Um, without further ado, I think we'll just jump right into this. That sound good? Yeah. Okay. All right. So our guest tonight is uh, Connor Wardle. Um, Connor is currently pursuing his undergraduate degree, and, and I think he's close to finishing based off the conversation we had before we went to air um, in Texas. Um, he has an Instagram page called Naturalistic Herps, where you can basically go and see Connor. He's pretty familiar in Calubra circles, especially here in the States. And um, I would say that Connor is most well-known for the fact that he keeps an awful lot of native species um, of colubrids from across Texas. Uh, and not only does he keep the animals, but he does outreach 
with his with his collection and is really big into education as well. Uh, so tonight with Connor, we're going to be talking specifically about the genus Mastacophis, which are the coach whips and North American whip snakes. When you use that word whip snake, I think it's kind of important to give at least a geographic context because there's a lot of different colubrids, colubrines across our planet that have that term whip snake associated with them. But um, Connor also is a keeper and works with Louisiana pine snakes for um, an AZA facility. I think it's Fort Worth, if I'm not. Yeah, yeah Fort Worth Zoo. Yes, sir. That's correct? Yeah. So without further ado, Connor, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. You know, uh, working a lot, um, like like y'all. Uh, I've got um, snakes coming up out of formation. I got some pretty uh, exciting uh, first pairings uh, for me with a few uh, um, species that I uh, just haven't haven't had an opportunity to really work with yet. Um, so I'm really really excited for that. Um, as far as the mascophis goes, I'll be pairing uh, Western Coach Whips, uh, the, the tan phase, red phase. Uh, and then uh, Red Racers as well, the Mascophis Pisces. Um, really excited for the Pisces pairings. You know, really nice uh, locality uh, pairing that I'm working with. Uh, it's going to be pretty awesome. Hopefully it works out. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we hope it works out for you. Yeah. So it, it's kind of standard issue to ask our, our guests, like, how they got into this whole thing. Um, okay. And I know that you've been on uh, the Herpeticulture podcast with Justin and Jake and um, Phil. Uh, but, you know, while you gave your background then, you can certainly give your background now. So yeah, definitely. let the listeners know how somebody ultimately ends up getting into colubrids and not only colubrids, but kind of an obscure genus that's not oftentimes kept. Right. Yeah. So um, probably just like everybody else, you know, I grew up, um, and just started catching, you know, your your toads and frogs and little ground skinks, stuff like that, Gulf Coast toads and uh, little brown skinks, like I said, um, things like that. You know, I'd keep them for the weekend, and then my folks would let me, uh, make me kind of release them because they didn't want to have uh, any uh, pets that I couldn't really uh, take care of responsibly, you know. Um, but, yes, yeah, so I did that for a while, uh, and then I got involved in Boy Scouts. Um, and uh, my, my first summer camp, uh, I went to Worth Ranch Scout Camp out in uh, Palo Pinto, Texas. Um, really awesome place. And uh, at the time, they were teaching a reptile study merit badge. And uh-huh. uh, one of my friends talked me into uh, signing up for that. Um, and until then, I didn't really have any like experience with snakes or lizards or anything like that. I was actually, uh, I can admit this now, but I actually had a little bit of a fear of snakes uh, at, at the beginning there. Um, yeah, so, um, one of the requirements, if you're not familiar with the reptile study merit badge is you have to own a reptile for a period of 90 days, uh, or you have to go to a zoo every single day for a period of like two weeks or something like that. Uh, you're supposed to note, uh, with either the animal you observe in the zoo or the animal you keep at home, uh, note any like growths, uh, things like that. Like if, if you notice the animal growing, if you notice it going into shed, um, things like that, when it's eating or whatnot, which would be kind of hard to do at a zoo facility. Uh, but just kind of keep, keep like records on your animal and uh, just kind of watch it progress and grow and things like that. So started off with a Chinese water dragon from PetSmart that, uh, some high school kid told me would be an excellent pet for my first reptile. Uh, it did not turn out to be that great. Um, yeah, yes, yeah, so I got that. I got into a few leopard geckos, things like that. 
Uh, and then eventually uh, I got into breeding uh, little brown skinks, those little ground skinks, which are really neat, really oh, cool. cool. Um, and then I, get, I joined uh, the, the vet med pathway in my high school. And uh, one of the requirements for that course uh, through the, the four years of high school was we would need 40 hours a semester in some type of animal-related field. Uh, we could uh, uh, do internships, things like that, or just get a job doing doing something, you know, basically like dog grooming or whatever. Uh, and I wanted to be different and cool. So my dad, um, going back to Boy Scouts, he, he's, he's very uh, active in uh, the, the council level and things like that. Uh, there used to be a Boy Scout facility called the Longhorn Activity Center uh, that had a collection of uh, North American king snakes, rat snakes, uh, milk snakes, things like that, and a few odds and ends, like we had a few bull snakes and gopher snakes and stuff like that. But it, it was a complete collection of every North American, Lampropeltus and Pantherophus there. It was really excellent <laughs> opportunity to uh, work for them, you know, just kind of cleaning racks, things like that. Uh, and then I got into helping out with the educational shows, uh, eventually, I did my I, I run my own snake shows and kind of got up into a manager role there. Uh, got into I, that's where I learned how to how to breed snakes. You know, doing my, my first attempt mm-hmm. at that. Uh, my first species I bred was checkered garter snakes uh, back in like twenty fifteen or sixteen or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of kind of gone from there. I pursued a bunch of different avenues and I've done like the I guess the Noah's Ark keeping. Um, but more recently, I've kind of. Uh, Honed in on Mascophis. Um, I guess really the reason that I got into Mascophis. Um, am, am I ranting too much? Is this is this okay? Oh, it's perfect, man. Okay, awesome, cool, cool. <laughs> I don't want to get too tangential or whatever. Uh, but anyway, so getting into Mascophis, um, I I worked. Uh, so I grew up. I started working uh, the summers uh, at, as a uh, summer camp counselor uh, in the nature department at that same Boy Scout summer camp, Worth Ranch. Uh, my first summer camp there. Um, yeah, so um, one of the things as nature staff that we would do uh, is we would get snake calls. Uh, so we'd have to go, like if someone found a snake on a trail or if it was in somebody's campsite and causing an issue or something like that, um, to kind of prevent any unfortunate uh, uh, situations, uh, we would we would remove the snake from the campsite and either relocate it back uh, further in the, the, the back part of the property there or um, if it was a new species that we hadn't kept, that we don't have an example of in the nature lodge at the time, uh, we would co- collect that animal, keep it for the three weeks of summer camp, you know, feed it and things like that, and then um, just let it go at the end of camp where we found it. Um, and um, it was 2017. Um, I came across my first coach whip just kind of out there on the crawl, and mm-hmm. I just ran after it, did a jump and diving leap, and uh, grabbed the very uh, the, the tail there, and um, it just... I don't know. Uh, it did well eating, and I decided, you know, I, I mean, everything I've heard about coach is that they're not going to eat for you in captivity, especially rodents, and they're going to be super um, bitey and things like that, and just everything that uh, I was reading was not true with this particular animal. Uh, so I decided that I would take it home and give it a shot, and I still have that animal today, and it's doing great. Uh, That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess uh, from Mascopus, I kind of expanded into yeah, Hypsoglena, your night snakes. Uh, I've got uh, Lake Chapala garter snake, some rubber boas, uh, and then I've got some desert glossy snakes as well. And then a few other, I guess, animals within the uh, Mascopus genus there. Um, so, yeah. Cool. So, 
Another question. Well, I tell you, this is oh, certainly an episode that. No, I'm sorry, but he's going to say, yeah, uh, this is certainly an episode I'm excited about with uh, the fact that we're going to be going into so much with Coach Whips because that's a species personally I've never worked with, never had any involvement with. And, and I'm pretty excited to hear uh, hear all about what you're doing with it, Connor. Uh, I'm actually pretty excited to be speaking with Connor as well. Uh, we, As we discussed earlier, we're Facebook friends, but have never really talked. Uh, which so one of us, I guess, must send random requests <laughs> out to yep. men in the hobby. We don't know which one, but uh, <laughs> are probably <both. laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of gravitate towards. Is there a reason that's drawing you to them? Um, so they're just like um just their facial structure is so cool and compared to I don't, it might just be the way that we were keeping the lampropeltis and pantherophis time you know um, at, at that facility they were kept in in rack systems uh which i don't really have any uh issues with people keeping snakes in racks you know there's a there's a, a good application for it you know um but they just kind of seemed to, they, they weren't just, they weren't as interesting or active as, uh, these, these coach whips were. Um, uh, so they're more active, you know, and, um, they just, they just look so cool. I, I can't really describe it like with words as well. Um, but like the coolest thing for me is waking up in the morning, the lights turn on and then I see this giant, this super long, uh, red snake or like my, my Pisces that I was showing, uh, Zach earlier. Uh, or the, the Dillonatus, the Cinnaron Whip Snake, just basking, just taking everything in. Super red, super blue. Uh, just, they just look so cool. So, yeah. I don't know if that's so, a good answer or not, but that's, no, just, that's probably a good answer. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and along those same lines. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned why you're, you're into Masticophis, but most of the snakes you mentioned were colubrids and we like to ask this question on our podcast so what is it about colubrids specifically and in your case the native species um that draws you in because as you know being a herpetoculturalist you can own now animals from around the planet and you can own retics boas um all the way down to little diminutive decay snakes if you want to but um right what yeah, about that, those are pretty fun too yeah <laughs> Yeah. Um, so as far as uh, what's kind of drawn me to those, um, it's just kind of what I've what I've been around the most, um, and there's just so many like. Well, number one, they're, they're a little bit more accessible um, for mm-hmm. me, um, which I mean, I guess that doesn't really matter because the internet now, I guess. Um, but um, there's just so many cool localities, and there's so many snakes that people just don't care about because they're brown. Uh-huh. Or they don't eat lizards. They, they don't eat snakes super easily, you know. Um, and I just think some of that stuff is like super cool. And like digging into like the like. So one of the big things that I worked with at, at the activity center breeding was Alterna, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so that's where I got like super into um, like localities and stuff. And um, I don't know, just the, the colors that you see on Mascopus throughout their range is extremely variable, you know. Uh, yep. You can find almost at any shade you want um, that's uh, 
I, I don't know. They just they, they look super cool. Um, let me see, let me go back to Calibrids. Sorry, I'm kind of, kind of getting off, okay. on a tangent there. Sorry. Um, so Calibrids, um, the as far as the the general care goes, I mean it's it's pretty. I don't want to say it's exactly the same across the board, you know. Yep. Uh, but the species that I'm kind of keeping now, uh, they're primarily southwestern U.S. herbs, you know. Uh, pretty pretty similar temperature and humidity gradient or needs and things like that. Um, so I just kind of keep what makes the most sense for what my passion is, you know. Um, it's kind of I, I can't and keep it in the same. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna jump right into the uh, keeping of these guys. And I know when we right. talked, we talked earlier. I, I think it's kind of important for you to kind of discuss your history with them because uh, when we were talking before the show, you mentioned how you initially kept some or a handful of them in racks, and now you've kind of segued over to this more naturalistic method methodology of keeping with glass aquaria and, and, and things of that nature. But if you don't mind, just kind of. First, talking about enclosures, uh, yeah. benefits to the the current keeping and and how the way you kept them in the past led you to where you're at today. Okay, cool. Um, so I guess the way that I started off keeping um, coach whips um, was uh, just in in big rack systems. Uh, I forget the exact size uh, of the rack. They were kind of some old animal plastic cage, uh, animal plastic uh, racks there. Um, but I would notice, um, like, whenever I tried to breed them, they wouldn't. Uh, I, n- I never saw any locks or anything like that. Um, so I would go and kind of text a few other guys that were interested in mascophis and things like that. And the biggest thing uh, is a daylight cycle. Uh, with, with these, so mm-hmm. keeping them in racks. Number one, you're not gonna you're not gonna really get the the daylight cycle that you need. Um, and then also a big thing is temperature and humidity gradients. Um, that's why I keep them keep them in kind of lar- larger enclosures so I can keep a pretty good temperature range and humidity uh, gradient there. Because um, I know a lot of these, or at least the ones that I'm keeping, are primarily desert animals. You know, uh, but it, it's still important to provide a uh, a nice humidity gradient, um, but if you're like the the um, the hot spots in, in their enclosures that I'm trying to hit are between like 95 and 100 degrees. So in a rack system, it's pretty hard to do that without like you, you don't have the space for a, a temperature gradient there. Um, and then also ventilation is important as well. Um, that's another thing with with the humidity there, rather than uh, I guess my biggest pet peeve is hearing people ask what humidity they should shoot for, like it's a percentage in their entire enclosure. I'm like, no, I'm thinking like a, like a shed box or a humid hide or something like that. Best. So you can achieve that gradient there so the animal can kind of – I'm not sure what the, the, the term would be. I'm just going to make something up like hydro-regulate. I don't know if that's the best way of putting it. Just They can kind of go um, from like the dryer side to the uh, humidity box there or something like that. Um, so just keeping all those factors in mind, I uh, decided it would be best to transition to more display type enclosures. Uh, I currently have um, both some kind of larger aquarium setups that I've uh, kind of scrapped off of Facebook Marketplace. Um, they're pretty heavy. 
Uh, and then I've got some uh, the the 36 uh, inches tall by 18 deep by 36 long Exoterra's front opening enclosures. Uh, I really like the front opening rather than the aquariums, you know, because it's less less yeah. of a predatory feel when you're going into the enclosure and things like that. Easier to navigate as well. Um, but the main goal, or the 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 big, um, if I could do it exactly the way I wanted to right now. Uh, I would do uh, something more of like a uh, six foot long, uh, six to seven foot long by three feet deep uh, by four foot tall uh, PVC enclosure. So right now I'm in the process of just saving up uh, for for those enclosures, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll go from there. That's- okay. So I I do have one question uh, about it's in addition to the enclosure. So I want to talk a little bit about lighting for these guys uh right because you know i i have a limited amount of experience with mastocophis the only one that i've collected was in um kansas though i've been all over their range in the, the eastern coach whips here in the southeastern united states uh but one of the things i did notice when i was out with the, the whips was we would see them while we were road cruising and I don't think I've ever seen a more alert snake up until that point in my life. I had messed a lot around a lot with Kaluber. So tons and tons of right. Southern black racers, Northern black racers. Um, and I've, I've had them do the periscoping and, you know, yeah. and then you, you see this black flash, but the way that the coach whips moved was like a whole other level. And it, it seemed like they were also moving when nothing else was moving. So like from 10 to two in the afternoon while we were on that trip in Kansas, um, that was like, if you were going to see a snake out, it was going to be a coach whip uh, from right. like seven to 11. It was, it would be bull snakes, you know, rat snakes, uh, garter snakes, ribbon snakes. And unfortunately no freaking hognose snakes. Cause that's what we went out there to find. But, um, it really kind of impressed upon me that this is not only a diurnal snake, but like a snake that was active when it was very warm. Um, so right. along those, that line of thinking, uh, what is your lighting situation for these guys and, and what kind of temperature gradients are you giving them? Like, are you, are you, are they getting pretty hot or are they, or is that not necessarily what you do? Like just speak to that if you don't mind, please. Right. So what I do, um, I'm I'm blanking on the specific wattages, uh, but I've got the kind of kind of messing around right now between the uh, Arcadia bulbs and then your just standard um, expensive for no reason uh, like Zilla uh, type heat bulbs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, kind of, um, figuring out trying trying to see which which ones my animals like a little bit more uh, than the other. Uh, just trying to find the most that what works best for the animal, but is also cost efficient as well uh, i don't want to compromise on the money side to um be like a detriment to the animals themselves so that's why i'm just trying, trying to figure that out right now see what's best um there but as far as the temperatures for heating uh that i'm that i'm using there um i try to hit um like a one hot spot um of uh, like like it sits around like 97 degrees or so Okay. Uh, so it's, it usually fluctuates between 95 and 100, depending on what the temperature is outside, because there's a there's a window in the room, uh, nice. which kind of changes things a little bit. Um, but yeah, uh, 
anyway, so yeah, that, that's the the hot spot there, and then the ambient room temperature uh, is between uh, seventy eight to eighty degrees there. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of the the gradient that I kind of kind of try to provide there, uh, and to achieve uh, those nice kind of best temperatures, uh, I've got quite a few um, like whenever. I see people in my neighborhood just kind of um, trimming trimming trees and things like that. I'll use a lot of oak, oak limbs and things like that because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I do see them uh, like whenever I'm out field herping and I come across a western coach. But the first thing they're ever gonna, that they're going to do is shoot up a, a Mexican juniper tree. That's usually usually what they do unless there's a little um, mouse hole or something like that that they end up going down in. Uh, but more often than not, they're going to shoot up a tree. Uh, so I try and provide the, the, the branches there because it also kind of helps with their just being comfortable in the enclosure as well, you know. Um, but um, as far as what I've been seeing uh, with these animals, they'll, they'll go up, they'll bask for 30 to 40 minutes or so at that higher temperature there. Uh, and then they'll kind of stick to the bottom for the rest of the day because uh, I guess it kind of dips down to about 75 or so at night uh, in the room. Um, just depending on like the temperature or so uh, outside. Um, so yeah, yeah. Okay. That's, that's it. And then on the lighting and the things. Oh, um, UV, UVB lighting. Is I was going to talk about UVB. Do we do we do UVB? Yeah. No UVB. What yes. do you do with that? Yeah, so I've, I, I use UVB uh, for all of my animals except for the albino uh, western coach whip. Uh, there's no. So I'm not familiar like. Um, I guess back whenever I, I first heard about um, caring for albino snakes and things like that, there was someone just said something about, oh, you don't want to use any excess lighting um, on UVB, on uh, albino animals, um, just because it kind of impairs their vision. Now, I'm not really sure um, where I heard that, uh, but I'm, I've been kind of looking into that a little bit more um, just to see if I could find any like actual proof behind that. I'm not sure if that's just somebody said something on a Facebook group once whenever I was first getting into reptiles and I just kind of went with that. Um, so I need to look into that a little bit more. Um, but particularly because that albino Western coachup has kind of got a, a slower growth to it uh, compared to other animals, uh, other mascopus that I've kept. Um, so I'm looking into um, whether that might just be a kind of deficiency with the UVB there. Uh, so. Anyway, but yes, I do provide I, I do provide UVB for all my animals on that uh, kind of twelve hour photo period there. I, I could, given the level of activity that these animals have and their response to sunlight, this is a critter where I know that we. I always hear people on podcasts and are like, "Well, I mean, you can do what you want, but at, at some point, we do kind of have to pull the trigger and say there are definitely going to be animals that are going to need the UVB, and if you are a animal that is diurnal as hell slithered yeah, around when it is hot as hell you're gonna i don't care if there's a change in your blood chemistry or not behaviorally that's probably an important thing for your welfare uh <clears throat> you know in, in human care so that's cool that you do do the um the the, the yeah UVB. and that, that's another reason that uh the uh um the racks just weren't working out yeah uh, so I, I've noticed a lot more active animals uh, with that lighting there. Uh, they just, I don't know if you can really tell if a snake's happy or not, but they're, they're more active. They're more smelling around and things like that in the morning. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's nice. It's nice. So. Sure. So substrate, you, you kind of talked about cage decorations, which would be things like uh, branches, um, you know, basically stuff that you can get from outside. Uh, right. 
what's your substrate for these guys? Because I'm certain it, I feel like moisture could be the enemy with them, but I don't know if that's just a little bit of folklore husbandry or not. And then what do you do? Like, do you have any kind of rock ledges or hides or anything like that in there with them? Right. So um, as far as substrate goes, uh, I make my kind of own mix uh, of just, it's pretty much just topsoil and a little bit of sand in there as well. Uh, just try and replicate um, some, like I'll, with the animals that I have locality information on, uh, yeah. I'll ask for habitat photos uh, or just kind of photos of like where these animals were kind of near, near like the nearest area to where these people herp, you know, um, from where these animals are collected. Uh, and then just try and like match the dirt as best as I can. <laughs> uh, I heard, um, I, I listened to the, the uh, Project for Pediculture as well. And yeah. uh, Phil was talking about whenever he keeps he kept uh, his Baja collared lizards, he would come back from the Baja area with just a bag of sand and dirt from where he collected these lizards. And I would love to do that for all my animals, um, just to kind of help. Uh, I, I feel like that kind of helps lock in the humidity as well. Uh, sometimes uh, with, with, with mm-hmm. the proper like that um, substrate from the area, uh, but that's why I provide those humid hides as well. Um, but yeah, so it's pretty much just a sand, uh, sand and topsoil mixture there. Uh, a little heavier on the topsoil there, just because I, I think the I don't like the just the bare sand uh, that kind of uh, sticks to like their cloaca and things like that. Yeah. I don't I don't want to get any impactions or things like that. Um, but yeah, whenever I notice an animal going into shed and things like that, uh, if they're not using their shed box, I'll spray it in the entire enclosure, uh, like a, like a deep soak, like a rain kind of, mm-hmm. uh, and then I get a perfect shed there uh, if the animal just doesn't recognize that the humid hut is there. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a substrate there. And then uh, as far as hides and other cage decor, uh, I use a lot of um, just tile, uh, just because it's super easy to clean. Uh, there's not like any texture like on your um, $70 reptile hide for no reason from PetSmart or whatever. You know, the, the the textures and stuff are harder to clean. You can get bacteria growths and things like that. Yeah. So I just use um, bricks and tile. Uh, I'll do different layers, uh, like levels of uh, brick and tile. Uh, that way there's kind of a um, – there's different, like, cracks and stuff, different crevices where there's different temperatures in there. And I'll tuck in a little bit of uh, sphagnum, uh, moist sphagnum in some of those crevices there. So there's also uh, some humidity gradient within that as well. And it's just an excellent way to thermoregulate with also, with also uh, staying hidden or feeling uh, nice and secure in a nice tighter, tighter space there. Sweet. And, and so on the water and humidity, you know, range, are, are, are you, obviously they have access to clean water all the time, I imagine, but are, right. are you misting these guys often or do you let their cage dry out or do you dry it out, soak it, dry, soak, like what's kind of your, your humidity, humidity rain or uh, regime? In, in yeah. I've just given these guys are mostly, I'm assuming most of your stock currently are wild caught. Is that correct? Uh, for the most part, uh, all of the mascophis that I keep uh, right now are wild caught. Uh, even that albino was—I uh, can talk about that later. Um, sure. But it, kind of interesting story there. Um, but yeah, so as far as uh, spraying the cage down and things like that, uh, I pretty much only do that if they're—if if I notice them going into blue. Because uh, okay. in, in the past, before I started spraying down the enclosure. Uh, I would notice they would shed, and there would be, you know, the, the patchier sheds, and um, I would notice a little bit of scale cracking as well. 
Um, so I just think it's best just whenever the animal goes into blue or it's getting kind of that opaque or glossy tint to it, um, just give it a nice spray down, uh, get the soil not, not like sopping wet, but a nice little just once over, uh, nice and kind of damp there on that top layer there. And uh, that usually does uh, plenty, plenty there. Uh, but if you think about like where some of these, especially your, your whip snakes, you know, um, especially like the, the striped whip snake that I keep, uh, those are often found in like the granite rock rock crevices and things like that, uh, where they'll share share uh, habitat with like some zanata and different uh, crotalis and things like that. But uh, just thinking about like the water that might be like in those cracks, you know, I think that they get a little bit more hydration than people think um, from, I guess, their their, their habitat. You know, uh, the, the water kind of pulls back in there and things like that. So, I don't know. yeah. And then my, my final question, and I, I think we've like hammered husbandry, which is awesome. Um, feeding these things. So, uh, you know, these are active pursuit site predators. <laughs> right. Um, are you doing a, like one big meal a week or a bunch of little meals or what the hell prey item are they eating? I, I'm really curious to see how you approach feeding. Uh, something like a coach whip or a, um, a, a, a striped whip snake, one of the other guys. Yeah, yeah. So um, with with my coach whips, I definitely have a little bit more of a rodent heavier diet there, um, just because they are kind of larger, girthier animals. Um, uh, at least from my experience seeing them out there in the field, and the whip snakes, your North American whip snakes, I should say, uh, typically more of the the slender, uh, kind of more of the. Um, I don't want to say arboreal, uh, but they are, um, they're, they're, they're just narrower and thinner, thinner animals there typically. Um, so with, with, with my coach whips, um, I was actually pretty lucky. I mean, with, from all the information that I, I was reading about them online whenever I first started off with that first tan phase, uh, was that, I mean, they're extremely difficult to get onto, uh, rodents, um, and they're primarily lizard and snake eaters. Uh, actually, uh, caught a Western coach whip once at that same Boy Scout camp and it, that ended up uh, regurgitating a uh, still living um, baby H rocks, which was pretty pretty cool. Whoa. Uh, first time uh, seeing one. Wow. Uh, so that, that, was, that was definitely interesting, kind of threw me for a loop there. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, so as far as feeding in uh, captivity, um, I'll, I'll feed them rodents. Uh, typically do smaller meals than they can take uh, more often. Um, yeah, exactly. So I, I would do um, like for for an adult uh, Western coach whip. I mean, they could um, feed on like an extra large mass, or um, even some people feed them rats sometimes, like the, the smaller end of the rats there. Um, and rats are super fatty, and you get like really obese coach whips, and that, that's a big issue in the hobby as a whole. Uh, with yeah. the people that do keep coach whips. I mean, I saw somebody post a, a picture of a red-faced coach whip in a vision cage uh, a few months ago. It was just like, it looked like an Eastern King snake, but like the, the girth there. And it was just, didn't have a neck at all. It was so, it, it was not great. Um, so I, I try and keep them on the, the, the leaner side, you know, smaller, smaller rodents uh, more often. Uh, I typically feed them five to six days. Uh, it doesn't really seem like a huge uh, difference between the, the seven day, seven to eight day normal feeding schedule, uh, but I'll I'll do that typically uh, small mice, small to large mice um, there with the, the the coach whips, and then if I notice they're getting too chunky, uh, I'll kind of stretch those days out a little bit more, or I'll offer uh, 
chicks as well, because uh, those are a little bit more lean uh, than, than your mice there. Um, but yeah, and then as far as um, your whip snakes go, uh, I primarily feed those um, quail chicks and um, okay. fuzzies, fuzzies and things like that. Uh, my my adult striped whip snake, it, I do give that guy hoppers uh, and then the, the quail in addition. Uh, but my Sonoran whip snake that I've got, he's still uh, I've got him on uh, kind of a every other feeding. It's quail or it's um, uh, fuzzies or things like that. Are you drop feeding or tong feeding? Yeah, so um, it really depends on the individual animal. Um, some of my animals will not eat with me in the room at all. Um, so, uh, you know, you, with with these being wild caught and with them being very visual uh, animals, uh, visual hunters there, um, you do kind of have to start them on live prey. Okay. Uh, but I had some animals where I just – I just say, oh, what the hell, let's just try it, you know. You just throw in a, uh, I guess, drop feed there would be the term there, uh, just yeah. a frozen thawed. Some of them will take this frozen thawed uh, with no issues, and they, they do great. Uh, some of them rely or need a little bit more of like a tease feeding there. Uh, and then I've had some animals that just don't eat anything. So, I mean, I'll, if they start deteriorating as far as that um, body composition goes, you know, I'll have to assist feed a little bit until I get to brumation. And then post brumation, they end up doing a. Uh, they'll end up pretty much taking whatever. Uh, but yeah, and then there's a lot of scenting tricks too uh, to get uh, some of these smaller guys uh, going. Uh, like you know, just all your usual Alterna tricks. You know, the, the boiling, the, the branding, things like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, lizard scenting. I've got so I, like I said, I keep uh, your night snakes, the Hypsiglena, and the desert glossy snakes and stuff. So I've got like 500 frozen anoles in my freezer. Uh, and uh, Scarlet Kings too, so they, they need those as well. Um, so um, I've got anoles, uh, uh, anoles in the freezer, and I make this little like anole pate. You know, you just kind of take the little yep. bullet blender. Um, uh, you can uh, just, just blend up X amount of lizards there, get a nice little um, milkshake there, uh, freeze it, and then thaw it out. There's going to be like a little oil level there mm-hmm. uh, over the top, and that's kind of like. That, that's what you need um, to, to get them, uh, I guess, sent it over. That's uh, worked um, with almost every single uh, uh, problem feeding I've had. Um, yeah, you just toss a little pinky or whatnot in that. Um, sometimes live, so it just really depends on the situation with the animal, I guess. Um, but, yeah, those are, those are the tricks that have worked for me. Um, and then I know a guy, William Huntsman, uh, the guy I'm working on the book with, which uh, we'll talk about later, uh, he uses this thing called it, – it's like a little feeding noose is what he calls it. It's like one of those um, – you, you know those clear snake tubes that people use for like yeah. tubes venomous? Yeah. Um, so it's like the, the like the really – like the thinnest one, and it'll have like a little loop uh, that goes down uh, through it like a little uh, fishing line or something like that. Uh, and he'll noose the head of a mouse there, and he'll tease feed but like off of tongs so that you can't – like it's uh, using the clear tube rather than the tongs, um, so that way there's less uh, anxiety or whatever you want to call it there uh, with mm-hmm. this big scary human with a giant tongs or whatnot. Uh, and that just kind of replicating a mouse running around the enclosure that that, that works pretty cool, uh, pretty well uh, as as well um, for your more visual animals that won't take the frozen thawed uh, or scented things like that. So. I'm admiring this dedication. 
because it's Thanks. Like I mean, I got a lot of tips and tricks here. <laughs> yeah, well, it all kind of transferred over from working with, um, like I said, the, the Alterna and I guess some of your smaller milks, the Utah milks and things like that. They're just a pain to get started. Um, so, yeah, yeah, just. Uh, I'll tell you, I, I got a couple questions for you. First, before I forget, um, I, didn't, I didn't want to interrupt. When you were talking about lighting, uh, you had mentioned, you know, figuring out which bulbs you want to use, the different brands and whatnot. You mentioned Arcadia. And, and I do want to say I'm a big fan of the Arcadia UVB, uh, excuse me, UVB bulbs. They, uh, I've been using those now over the past six months, and I'm a, a big fan. Of, uh, of what they do and how well the animals respond to them. So I just, just wanted to mention that since you happen to bring that brand up, that you're yeah. looking at using. So, um, so you also had said earlier that, you know, you'd always heard how hard they were. They, they don't do well in captivity. You know, they, they're a problem snake in captivity. And I've always heard the exact same thing. Uh, in fact, just today at the show, I had a woman walk by the table and she asked us, so uh, you don't have any coach whips? <laughs> no, I almost said nobody does. <laughs> you know, because no one works with coach whips. They're too hard. Uh, but I didn't say that, of course. Uh, so my question is, you know, what made you want to take that challenge on? Hearing, you know, how hard and difficult they are, um, or that's, you know, what you were being told, what made you decide, you know, I, I want to jump into that? Well, um, I really like a, a challenge, uh, something something new, you know. I'm just trying trying to fill kind of a, a, a niche and kind of show um, show people. That I, I don't know, like prove people wrong. I don't I don't want to say that. Um, but I mean, taking that first coach, um, like I said, at that that scout camp, uh, I, we we lost a new coach in the in the building. Uh, set up in a 40 gallon, uh, which was looking back not ideal for an adult Western coach whip. Um, and then uh, the feeding day next, the a uh, few days later, and I just tossed in a few frozen thawed uh, small mice, and I mean, they were gone the next day. I mean, it, it, there was no work at all to get that animal on frozen thawed. Uh, and um, like, I I just don't people. I don't think people give them a chance just because you, you come across them in the wild. You pick them up. The first thing they're going to do, uh, usually, the first thing they're going to do is to try and bite you in the face or chew on your thumb or something like that. You know, they're going to poop all over you, fling their tail, uh, and then just. I've had a few like alligator roll, uh, kind of like a corkscrew thing, um, and it just kind of sets a bad taste in your mouth. Um, like if, if they're going to act like this in your hand, you know, when you first pick them up, you know. Um, they're not going to be like a corn snake or something like that. You know, it's just kind of, kind of, kind of chill out. Um, so I guess just people just don't want to put the effort into them. And then the people that have put the effort into breeding them, um, I mean, there, there's, there's some people that just give up because the, the babies are just too hard to, um, just get, get onto rodents. And I mean, not, not everything will take a rodent. You know, you gotta, you gotta start yeah. with lizards and you gotta be okay with feeding lizards. You gotta be okay with, frog sensing for other things, you know, and just trying different things, you know, not everything's going to want to eat a rodent and you got to be okay with that. So, you know, I think I, I, I kind of love the point you're, you're making there. It's something I, I guess, as we, we talk more and more about the less kept species that we really need to remember it. And, you know, as I said, we often have heard these don't do well in captivity when I guess the true statement is, 
these don't do well in captivity under the conditions we have tried previously. Yeah. Right. You know, it's, and that's really what it comes down to. So, you know, like you said, it's, it's not about proving people wrong. It's about finding that right formula. You know, yeah. I think that's yeah, just about anything can be kept in captivity if we had the right formula, the right size enclosure, right. the right, uh, you know, temps, the right food. So uh, that's, yeah. that's an excellent point there. Um, yeah. And then so, also, as I'm, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and also like making that information accessible. Like there, there's, there's people that right. do keep these and they're, I don't want to say, well, I guess the term is like gatekeeping, I guess that's kind of whatever. Um, but I mean, just helping people out, you know, showing what you're doing, you know, answering questions, uh, and not just saying, oh, you shouldn't keep this because you've only kept like corn snakes or whatever, you know, or ball pythons or whatnot. I, I, I don't know. I'm not, not hating on th- those crowds there. Um, I realize that they're not for everybody, you know, um, but I mean, uh, if people have a passion or if they, if, if they want to learn about them, you know, I'm always trying to answer questions and try to make them, uh, just spread that information out there a little bit better. So. That's great. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that this is a species I, I don't have any, uh, any knowledge on really, as far as never kept them. I think I've only right. seen two coach whips ever in person, a couple wild caught on, you know, tables somewhere at a show. Um, I'm very familiar with black racers. We've got plenty of those around and that's probably the most similar animal to a coach whip in, in my neck of the woods. Um, okay. So I think like my next question would be, or can you talk about their behaviors in captivity? What are some of those quirks that you see? Uh, you know what I mean? What are some of their activities day, night, just, yeah, yeah. If I was sitting so, here watching this snake. What would I see? Yeah, so they're definitely um, they're definitely more off hands as far as captivity goes. Uh, they're not gonna like they'll they'll tolerate a little bit of handling. Um, I'll, I'll I'll take them uh, and snap photos or things like that if I'm gonna be like going in their cage and cleaning things, you know, just because I don't want them to jump out of the enclosure and get behind my bed or whatnot, you know. Um, so, um, as far as just habits from what I've noticed, um, I mean that they'll, they'll come out, like I said, in the morning, as soon as the lights come on, uh, come up, they'll, they'll bask for a little bit and then they'll kind of cruise around the enclosure. Uh, and then, uh, they'll kind of do a little bit of hiding, um, like in their little crevices and things like that. Uh, I'll see them whenever they start to, uh, get closer to, um, like the day before feeding or things like that. Um, they'll come out and they'll kind of like periscope, which is like super cool. And they'll just kind of like look around. Uh, that albino that I've got is probably the, one of the more, uh, friendly animals that I have. Uh, and he'll like, I'll open up the enclosure and as I'm like refilling water or something like that, and he'll shoot out and just kind of like periscope and just like look at my hands and like look at me in the face and things like that and just kind of move his head back and forth between my hand and my head, my face, just kind of seeing if I've got food there or what's going on, you know, things like that. Um, not every single mascot is going to be like that, though. I mean, they're, they're, they're each individual animals with their own kind of quirks and things like that. Um, like my, my my strike whip snake, for example, you know, it's it's more uh, like it won't eat with me in the room. You know, uh, whenever I'm in the room, it'll kind of hang out for a little bit. But if I get too close to the cage, it'll kind of dart down into its hide there. Um, they're just um, – when they're out, they're really pretty and awesome to look at, um, but they're, they're definitely hands-off and pretty uh, – um, uh, ang- I don't want to say anxiety-prone, um, but they are a little bit more cautious uh, until 
until you get them tom feeding. Once you once you get them tom feeding, they they they, they realize that you're not to uh, be that hawk or whatever that's going to come grab them. You know, you're, you're there. You're the the guy with the food bag and all that, um, and uh, they'll be a little bit more confident then. Um, yeah. You know, the periscoping is one of the coolest things to see a snake do. I uh, I was sitting out. Um, I wasn't in a deer blind. I was more sitting against a tree uh, deer hunting. And this was in October. It was bow. So it was still, it wasn't too cool out yet. And I could hear some rustling in leaves, maybe about I don't know, 25 feet from me. And I kind of look over and I see a, a vole. Hope you guys know what I'm to. Oh, yeah, I know what yeah, you're talking about. Who, gotcha, yeah. So for those who don't yeah. know, let's just say the rodents. <laughs> yeah, uh, there you but go. I see a vulture scurrying up uh, the hillside, and, you know, it's one of those things where you think, how could I hear that from 25 feet away? But when you're sitting in the woods, you'd be surprised how loud any yep. of them yeah. are. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, watched it, and it wasn't, I mean, 30 seconds behind it, here's a black racer periscoping going right up that trail, following that yeah. uh Ended up getting it at the top of the hill. It was, it was pretty neat to, to just sit there. We gave me the entertainment while uh, while waiting. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. So cool. Uh, something else that you mentioned a couple times, Connor, and, and it's it's got my attention. Uh, you mentioned this albino. There's a story right. behind this albino coach. Share that with us. Yeah, so um, every uh, every day, I start my day by scrolling through um, the new posts on Fauna Classifieds. So I go all the way to the end, and then I go through uh, Morph Market all the way through with the uh, other Colubrids section, uh, uh, and then I'll hop on uh, King Snake uh, through a few Snake ID groups on Facebook and things like that. Uh, and there's one day uh, I came across on the uh, like, it's like North Texas Snake ID something one of those uh, North Texas Snake ID groups or whatever. Um, and this this guy had this photo of uh, this albino western coach whip in like a, one of those kind of larger deli cups there on Eco Earth. It was like super wet substrate. Uh, he had a bunch of dubias in there and. Uh, it was like growing that. Um, I don't know if y'all are familiar with that, like the Lugardi uh, terrarium grass. There was like grass growing there, which was it was cool. Uh, it was just too wet and uh, humid for that animal there. Uh, he 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 said that he found it uh, in uh, at his work uh, on, on in, in uh, Midlothian, Texas uh, area there, uh, and he was he said it was too small for rodents, so he's trying to feed it dubias and crickets. And uh, didn't have any success with it, so he was just trying to figure out what animal it was, so it could uh, he, he could kind of look into it a little bit more. Uh, this was during uh, COVID time, so about 2020 is uh, back back when this was going on. Um, so I immediately screenshotted the post, texted the guys like, "Hey, um, it's a it's, it's a Western coach whip. Um, they're a little bit more of a uh, more uh, intermediate uh, species. There, uh, I'd be happy to um, kind of." Uh, give you some pointers and tips uh, with it, um, but I would be most interested in purchasing that animal from you. Um, and I, I, I kind of showed him pictures of my collection, you know, talked to him about my experience keeping uh, mescos and things like that, and he he agreed to sell it to me. Uh, so that way, uh, it would go uh, to to someone with with the intention of producing that animal, 
uh, on the condition uh, that whenever I get around to producing uh, a albino Western coach whip, um, that I would make sure that he was uh, considered for one of those. Um, so kind of helped him through the husbandry with that there. Uh, talked about a few different other species that he was looking into, things like that. Uh, but yeah, he just, he found the floor, uh, on, uh, the, the concrete floor of a, uh, warehouse he was working in at the time. Um, just really small, like totally like fresh out of the egg uh, animal there. So I was a little bit bummed. I couldn't harp around that area and see if there was any additional animals. I'm sure, I'm sure there was, uh, additional, uh, albinos that hashed out with it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been in my care ever since, uh, it started it, it uh, it, it wouldn't take, uh, rodents at first, so I started on uh, morning geckos and uh, just some other house geckos and things like that that I could grab and find at uh, shows and then just that I could cheaply find outside my front door and things like that. Uh, so I got it feeding on live uh, lizards and then transitioned to frozen thawed lizards off tongs, then uh, scented, uh, scented pinkies off tongs, and then it's kind of slowly... Um, taking it off that scenting there to uh, hoppers, which is on down. So, I'll flip about fifty thousand rocks, logs, in artificial debris in my lifetime. <laughs> and never find any abnormality. Yet, we yeah. find this on the concrete slab at work. <laughs> yeah. Never Absolutely ceases to amaze. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is wild. That is wild. Wow. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, so you mentioned that the guy that found the albino once kind of dibs on the first clutch of albinos, which obviously means that you need to breed these things. Um, right. So, can you speak a little bit to the breeding process? Um, I, and, and what what you've been able to find out on your own, your personal experience with breeding them. Is it a typical North American colubrid situation where you have to brewmate? You don't have to brewmate. Is it more food cycling kind of just stream of consciousness your way through that? Um, and, and, and let us, let us know your wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I haven't actually had a successful clutch, yeah. Uh, with uh, any mascophis of any kind yet. Uh, I'm hoping that that changes this year. Uh, I've been taking a lot of notes from a few other guys. Uh, like I, I mentioned William Huntsman before. Um, he's uh, one of the, um, I guess, more passionate uh, mascophis uh, keepers um, mm-hmm. in the hobby uh, that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, him and a handful of other guys. Uh, but, but William has been uh, producing... He produced uh, the the red phase and tan phase Western coach whips uh, from like the early 2000s, like 2003 until like 2012, uh, uh, and then uh, he I saw that collection to uh, another uh, one of my friends uh, around that time, uh, who's also a production mascot as well. Uh, but anyway, so just getting um, some uh, notes from the two of them, I've uh, kind of. Uh, slowly kind of tweaked my keeping and uh, lined me up for my, my breeding season this, this season. Um, so what I, what I've done um, is, uh, you know, you do the, the usual brumation period. Uh, I cooled them down. Uh, we're almost at three months there at uh, around 
like the the, the mid uh, to upper fifties. Uh, so the, the the wine fridge that I've got them in is kind of hovering around fifty six, fifty eight uh, throughout that entire uh, period there. Um, like I said, I've, I've got, got them down for three months there, and then you're going to slowly bring them up. You know, start feeding them. Uh, start off, of course, with coming out of formation, smaller prey items. You know, you don't want to overload their system with the big. Mm-hmm. A chick or something like that, you know, just your, your standard waking up procedure there. Um, and then just that, that photo period, you know, you're going to want to increase that, um, kind of increase that in the room already, you know. Um, they're at the, the 12 hours of photo period now, and then I'll transition that to 14 um, for that, uh, that kind of summer period there. Um, and then as far as pairing goes, uh, you, you do have to be uh, – aware of your animals and their tendencies. Uh, my my adult female Pisces um, came to me as a snake eater. Um, so oh. I'm going to have to watch them pretty pretty closely there. Um, hmm. So uh, just knowing your animals, uh, sometimes it's it's you can uh, cohabitate those animals, uh, which is what I plan to do whenever I get those nice uh, PVC enclosures and my, my big grand uh, reptile room uh, set up the way I would like to do. I would like to house them in. Uh, pairs or even trios uh, with some species, some of the smaller uh, species that I'd like to get into. Um, but yeah, you just kind of you, you keep them together, and like I said, they are kind of a little bit higher strung. That little variety there, um, so you, they don't like a lot of change uh, with, with, with their surroundings. There, uh, I know this uh, lady Erica Austinek. She's over in Europe, and she regularly produces Pisces, uh, your, your red racers there. Uh, your your Western coaches, and then I got her into uh, stripe whip, uh, stripe racers, uh, the uh, Mascophis uh, lateralis or something like that uh, in kind of Central California there. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so she she cohabitates her animals and uh, doesn't touch them outside of uh, providing water and food and things like that. Um, and she's had great success that way. Uh, so I'm going to try and do what I can to. Uh, cohabitate the animals. You know, I want to make sure the female is obviously not feeding uh, on snakes whenever I'm pairing them, you know. Um, out of rumination, I plan to do a lot of lizard sensing. I got her on curly tails, uh, those big, beefy curly tail lizards, uh, before rumination because um, I didn't have access to reasonably priced feeder snakes. Uh, so uh, we're going to oh. kind of take her goes there. Um, but I'm going to try and not, not mess with them too much, you know. Um, don't really dis- disrupt their surroundings uh, that much, but I, I plan to keep them together for um, uh, a few hours, you know, where I can just watch them and see how they're going to react there. Uh, and then I'll have, uh, I've got those, um, I've got some, uh, those, uh, I forget what brand they are, but those uh, like cameras that you can kind of mount on your glass tanks there. Oh, I know what you're talking uh, about. Yeah. Kind of keep an eye on it a little closer uh, whenever I, decide to leave them in like overnight or something like that. But ideally I'd like to have my animals together uh, during that breeding season together uh, until that female lays eggs. And then I would separate them uh, just so she, the, the male doesn't continue to pursue the, the female there and things like that. So. Yeah. And, and on the, that same token, you, you've kind of alluded to the fact that getting these little guys to go can be a pain because of the, the, the the kind of emphasis on lizards and alternative prey from what we normally feed colubrid snakes and, and human care. Um, right. Can you speak a little bit to that? Or, or, I mean, obviously with your albino, it sounds like you kind of had to get that guy up and going. Um, yeah. 
But but what's the yeah. deal with babies? Yeah, so uh, I've I've raised up a few different babies uh, from a few different localities and things like that. Um, so basically, uh, I mean, uh, they're going to go after that motion first, you know. So you're mm-hmm. going to want to have some type of access to a live house gecko or ground skink or something like that. House geckos work a little bit better. I'm not sure why. I'm, I don't know if it's the smell or something like that that they like a little bit more than, than the ground skinks. Uh, but even um, like grasshoppers too. Like I mean, I've, I've kept um, some yellow belly racers and black racers, you know, and um, the crickets and things like that work with them as the the hatchling neonate um, sizes there, you know. So I just tried that with some coaches. Well, um, and sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. It just really depends. Uh, I find a lot of the like central Texas animals that I've got. Uh, transition easier to rodents, uh, but more of your your more western species are going to be more lizard. Um, uh, they're going to have a, a taste for lizards there, uh, and you're going to need to do a little bit more scenting there. Uh, but yeah, so start off with some type of uh, live prey that's going to have some that good motion there to kind of trigger their response there. Uh, and once they once they start feeding regularly on that live prey. Uh, try to transition to tong feeding there as best as you can. Uh, with, with them being that kind of smaller hatchling phase, it is a little bit tricky sometimes, uh, but it's just a lot of – you, you just got to sit there and be okay. Just kind of <laughs> doing a little bit of cheese feeding there. You know, you can sit there for, I mean, even 20 minutes at a time with just this one snake, you know. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you just got to be willing to do that. Were you able to get – a? A baby coach whip or whip snake to eat a cricket? Did I hear that right? Uh, so with with the racers, it's a little bit more popular there, uh, price source there. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I've had um, th- this one. Uh, we call her Apache because uh, she, <laughs> whenever she was caught, you know, that she would just do the alligator roll, kind of like a like a helicopter propeller there. Yeah. That's what she kind of looked like there. Like you're picking up a ribbon snake, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So I mean, she started off on. Uh, I would just go collect some grasshoppers because um, those were larger probably than the, than, than the crickets there and a little bit more yeah. more teeter, yeah. you know. Uh, so, yeah, a little bit of that cricket there. Uh, and then I uh, uh, did, did a little bit of uh, cricket scenting where you basically just crushed a whole bag of crickets, you know, mix uh-huh. around a, a pinky there. And then uh, just keeping the similar smells, you know, and then you just kind of wean them off uh, as, as you can. That's really cool. Um, here – in, in my part of the world, we have um, smooth green snakes and rough green snakes, but where I'm at, smooth greens are more common. And we... Those are awesome. Yeah. I, I had a student... Um, that is the rarest snake where where I live, and I am certain they're not really that rare. It's just a matter of... They live in fields full of grass, and they look just like grass, and you just have to literally be at the right place at the right time. And right. one of my students caught one crossing the road on her way in from a crayfish trip and uh she brought it in because she i i, I kind of had like a a bounty out on them not that i was going to keep them per se but i just wanted to see one from my area so um aaron brought it in and for me to get photographs and then we were going to take it right back out and let it go and it was gravid and i was like okay so this was last summer so it, it dropped a clutch i got all the data on it was not aware that those little guys will go from it from like being laid to hatching in about 25 days. 
I didn't know that. Wow. wow. So I, I, I didn't know that either. <laughs> so I went and checked in. I looked at my incubator because I took them to my house. And, you know, there's a full freaking – they were all over the incubator too because they're so tiny. They got out yeah. of the holes I had punched in the deli <laughs> I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but I found all of them. Um, and then I wanted to let them go. And I, I, I got a bunch of data because we were going to get a herp review note. Um, and they were so camouflaged with the little bit of grass that I put in the damn bin that I got all the way back here and handed the bin to one of the students. And they're like, there's another snake in here. I was like, what? <laughs> sure enough, there was another snake in there. And I was, I wanted to let them go exactly where we caught them. So I told, uh, the, the zoo site kids, well, just grab some pinhead crickets and throw it in there. And that little booger ate those bugs like right off the bat. Like it wasn't, I don't even think it had shit. I think it was like two days old and it was already yeah. like pounding crickets. But other than that, that's the only time I've, I've, I've heard of, um, a snake actually eating an insect. So, uh, yeah, yeah. actually, um, I've got, I've got a buddy that's kept those a little bit more long term. Um, the, 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 the smooth greens. And he said yeah. he, he, he thinks of them a little bit more as the, the racer type just because, um, he, he had them in with some ribbon snakes. Yeah. And they actually ate the ribbon snakes, which was oh wow, pretty, yeah, <laughs> yeah, crazy. Uh, so like they were like kind of younger uh, red striped ribbon snakes. Yeah, uh, so that's kind of an interesting note there. Uh, uh, well, yeah, the the smooth green went back. Yeah. He's slithering around the field that that they were found in, but no, that that's nuts. Um, well, talking okay. about the insects, I got I got to jump in with just a quick one myself. Sure, uh, go for it. Greenbush rat snakes, Persina. Hmm. They're not the kids, uh, if I'm saying it right. Like the, yeah. you know, what I'm talking about kids, yeah. kind of grasshopper looking thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. they'll tear those up. No joke. They're That's crazy. Those. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I uh, I have a friend uh, Megan who had. That's we first started speaking about greenbush rat snakes. She reached out with some questions and. Over time, I mean, that's something that she let me know is that's that's hers. It's their favorite meal. You know, whenever it wouldn't eat for, if she threw one of those in, bam, it was on it. Whoa. That's the same thing with buttermilk racers as well. Uh, I've got friends that'll go out there and as soon as they pick them up, there's always like beetle musk and poop or whatever that they're just excreting all over the place. (laughs) Uh, I've got a few friends that that keep them in captivity and they they tend to uh, prefer the, the, like they'll tong feed on crickets or grasshoppers and then you give them a fuzzy or something like that on the tongs after a few oh, crickets. Cool. Or they'll, they'll take that. Um, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, it's cool that grasshoppers are a little bit more accessible now as far as feeders go from uh, yep. the Cali grasshoppers down there. So that's neat. Cool. So I, I, I want to jump over to this project you have outside of keeping, but it has everything to do with keeping and, um, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast is I had seen on social media that you were making reference to a book project you were working on. Um, being that I just wrapped up a book project, I know what that entails. Uh, and I will honestly say that if you, you go through the process of, you know, doing the deep dive on the biology and the natural history and then reaching out to everybody, it, it, it totally makes you it engages you with the animals you keep at a whole other level when you decide that you're going to take something like this on if you're doing it the right way. And and there's lots of good books out there. There's lots of bad books out there. Uh, But I'm certain yours is going to be a good one because we were talking about it beforehand and and you definitely 
I, I'm excited about this because the world needs more colubrid books. But can you talk a little bit about your book project and, and who you're doing it? You, know, you have a co-author and just right. what, you, what your plans are and, and all that, Jeff. Yeah. So um, I prefer the term Mastocophis um, just because that's what I grew up starting with and knowing about, or I guess that's how I was introduced to these species and things like that. Um, but the, the current taxonomy, uh, as it's been explained to me, is that they are referred to as Colubr. Now they're back back into Colubr, um, which uh, in my own personal keeping, I will always refer to them as Mastocophis just because that's, I don't know, that's just how I am, I guess. Uh, but for the, to keep it relevant to, um, um, I guess, updated uh, taxonomy and things like that, we're going to go and call it, um, uh, we haven't officially uh, created the title yet, but it's going to be a uh, book kind of going over general colubra care. Uh, and we've we've broken it down into sections because now that we've lumped mascophis into colubra, you know, there's a bunch of different species there, you know, that have all have different um, requirements and things like that. Um, so we've got, we've kind of got three sections as far as the husbandry goes. Uh, or let me kind of back up here. So with the book, uh, we're going to start off the, the opening section there uh, will be um, a species list with a species breakdown where we're going to go into, um, there's going to be a range map for each species on their own individual like species. Like there's going to be like two or three pages for, for each uh, species where we go into um, the, uh, the physical description of the animal, the habitat description uh, and then just uh, uh, a few interesting notes about the species. Uh, um, and then there's going to be a few uh, photos, like in situ photos of, of the that species, mm-hmm. showing kind of the different uh, phenotype variations and things like that. A few habitat photos and then a range map, uh, like I said, uh, for each of those species. And for Mastoscophus, there is 17 um, recognized species, uh, but there are three uh, referenced subspecies of neotropical racer, the, uh, neotropical, uh, whipsnake, excuse me, or yeah. neotropical crotch, whatever you want to call it, common name, the, the Mastocophis mentovarius. Uh, and then there's two, uh, referenced subspecies of, uh, the Sonoran whipsnake, Mastocophis bilinatus. So there's going to be a deep dive into each of those, uh, and then all of as well, uh, with those range maps and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from, once we go through the, the, the deep dive into each species uh, and kind of kind of go through all that, there's going to be three different sections where we go into the uh, just general husbandry and care because um, there there is differences between how I would keep a racer, like I said, yeah. except ever, uh, uh, black racers and yellow belly racers, the eastern yellow belly racers uh, before. Uh, there's definitely differences in keeping those compared to coach whips compared to your whip snakes. There's a little bit more similarity between your coach whips and whips next as far as captive care goes. Um, so we're, 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 we're breaking those sections out a little bit into their own kind of chapters, I guess. Uh, that's, yeah, chapters there. Uh, and then from there, uh, we're going to go into um, kind of emulating uh, a little bit of the things that they touch on uh, in, like, the complete sub-arc. If you guys are familiar with that book there. Uh, talking about um, a few um, diseases or just things you got to watch out with, like health-wise and how to how to choose an animal, you know, because a lot of these are uh, captive. Or there, a lot of them are wild caught. Excuse me, they're not quite uh, captive bred in uh, 
numbers uh, that you would find uh, any other uh, common snake, you know, in captivity. Uh, and then uh, after that, there's just going to be my favorite part of it is just going into uh, this locality section where we just have photos, uh, yeah. like a, maybe uh, six to eight photos or whatever of each species, you know, just from different parts of their range. Because uh, if you look at eastern coach whips, you know, like they're some of the most beautiful snakes out there. Like you, you find the ones in Florida, you know, that are the almost yeah. like sand white uh, gradient to the, the black head. Uh, absolutely insane looking animals there. And then you look at eastern coach whips in the Ozarks, like in Missouri, and you've got some animals that are like solid black with like this red modeling, gold modeling, mm-hmm. banding and things like that. And it's just absolutely insane. Um, so I'm just, Really, really, just um, I'm not. I'm not sure that, what word I'm trying to say, but it's just really, really exciting um, to, to to see all that. Um, so yeah, that's that, that's the rough outline of the book there. Um, but I'm I'm kind of taking more of the uh, the Mascofa side here uh, with, uh, and then William, my, my co-author, he's got a little bit more experience with the Kluber, uh, your your North American racers there. Um, yeah. and then some of your, some of your like Mexican species, well, I guess that's North America as well. Sorry. Um, but yeah, so he, he's primarily, um, helping with that section there as well as, uh, adding the notes with the breeding just because I haven't, haven't, haven't got there, uh, yet. Um, but it's been a lot of fun diving into, uh, some of the books uh, that I've been able to find, uh, and just, just reading about some of these species and the cool little, um, facts uh, about some of these snakes. Like for, I, I talked to Zach a little bit earlier about this, but the uh, there's there's this uh, species, the Clarion Island whip snake, uh, Mascophis anthonii. Uh, they're native to the Clarion Island, uh, and it's an island off the coast of uh, Baja, California. There, um, and there's there's like three or four reptile species on the island, and a few birds and things like that. I'm, uh, to my knowledge, I don't. I don't think there's any endemic mammals there. Um, so these uh, these uh, Clarion Island whip snakes, what what they do is uh, throughout the year, um, they'll prey heavily on the uh, Clarion Island tree lizard. Uh, I forget the, the scientific name there, but they're these like bright, like electric blue um, lizards. They're like uh, like. I'd say like five to six inches long there. Uh, really, really, really beautiful blue lizards there. Uh, and then for like, I don't know if it's fall or spring, but there's a seasonal period where these uh, these birds come in and they lay eggs and they nest on these uh, these rock rock uh, kind of cliffs areas. Uh, and so these snakes will kind of travel from a kind of lower area up to where these birds are are, are nesting, and then they'll just like gorge themselves on birds before the winter time. Uh, but because they're only eating birds and lizards, uh, they, they've got quite like really, really oily um, meat and skin and things like that. Uh, so that kind of translates to the snake themselves. And there's there's references of them um, like actually being oily to the touch or like just something a little bit weird to them compared to a normal delivery, which I find is really really interesting. And I'm loving uh, things like that. And then just talking to a few other herpers that come across uh, some of the snakes. Um, down in Mexico, you know, that I'm not as fortunate to, to see, like these neotropical, uh, neotropical whip snakes. Uh, they're just almost, almost as big as a Kribo. Like they're very heavy bodied, yeah. uh, beautiful, beautiful snakes, uh, very, very thick. Uh, you, you wouldn't think that they'd be a mascophis, uh, based on, um, 
how they look, but I mean, they're just, they are insane. They're just total beasts. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was telling you beforehand that I got to see the, the neotropical coach whip or whip snake, but uh, I think the common name is yeah. coach whip, neotropical coach whip. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah, the Mentavarius, yeah. Yeah, Mentavarius, and it was, that was in Costa Rica, and it was a seven-foot beast, and it was as big as around my, my um, forearm. It had the exact dimensions of our yellow-tailed Kribos here at school. So, just an absolutely gigantic animal. Um, so, as, as, as someone who's just gone through this process, I, so, obviously, like, Connor does not all right, so let's talk a little bit about photographs, because I can flat out tell you, when you write one of these, you do not realize how many photographs you need. Uh, Justin right. Julander, I, I distinctly remember when uh, this was like a year and a half ago. I, th- I don't know how long ago it was. I've lost track of all time when it comes to that book. <laughs> but, uh, but I said, like, I'm done. And then he and Nick Mutton were like, you think you're done? Um, because I hadn't found a photograph. Like I didn't didn't have the photographs, and there's over 200 photographs in this book. So I can flat out say that you know if you if you have what you deem to be really good photographs of this group of snakes, don't be upset if Connor doesn't use them. Uh, but if you're willing to to, to donate them to Connor's um, cause, I by all means encourage you to reach out to him on social media and maybe fire one away. And the standard of what constitutes a good photograph for a book. Um, that's up to your copy editor or the editor. So, uh, you know, it's got to make it past the gatekeeper. That is the editor, but I, I, you know, I can speak for, for Connor that he can use any and all. And especially if you're doing a locality approach, there yeah. might be somebody out there that has some wackadoodle locality of one of these things that you don't know about that would, you know, increase the, um, utility of the book that much more. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's been very tough for me to find photos of the Baja California, uh, racer, Baja California yeah. stripe racer, uh, the Alameda, uh, stripe racer. And then of course the Clarion Island whip snake just because, um, it's a protected Island. Uh, so there's like seven or eight photos on iNaturalist and I've been emailing every single person uh, that I can get an email from. <laughs> Or email address from just searching the webs, you know, uh, trying to get in contact with these people. Um, but it's been, uh, it's been tough. No, by all means. So if you want to, if, if you're listening to this and you're a herper or you even keep them in human care. Oh, totally, yeah. Um, yeah. I'd love to see, um, different ways that people are keeping these snakes. I mean, I think it's important to, uh, not just show one side, you know, um, it's, it's important to see that. All like because um, what I'm doing might not necessarily work for yourself or for uh, other people, you know. So yep. Anyway, yeah, I, I'd love to see the different uh, styles of keeping there. I know, I know a friend in Florida uh, that keeps a pair of Eastern coach, coach whips in an actual like outdoor screen enclosure that he built himself, uh, just in his backyard, and they're doing great. Um, so that, that, that's really neat. Gosh. Zach's writing a book. Connor's writing a book. Clint's writing a grocery list. I mean, that's <laughs> making me need, need to up my game. I think. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. You're kind of scaring me. <laughs> How much work goes into it? Yeah. Hats off to you, gentlemen, for sure. 
Thanks. Well, well Connor, after the, the book is done, and, and I'm sure you uh, you know want to take a, a long break after that. What's next? Uh, like, what do you? What species are interesting you? You know, what? Where do you think you go after this? Yeah. So currently, um, the 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 Mescova species that I'm keeping are uh, your your Pisces, those red racers there, the Mescova flagellum Pisces, uh, the Western coach whips, uh, the testicles there. Uh, Sonoran whipsnake, the Bilinatus, uh, and the striped whipsnake. I would love to find uh, mates for my Sonoran whipsnake and my striped whipsnake before I expand into something else, um, just because I'd like to have a, a pair where I'm able to uh, produce, you know, and get, get animals out there. I, I don't believe in wild-caught animals as pets, you know, and <laughs> currently that's, that's, that's what they're doing, just um, being low animals in my collection, you know. Um, so I would love, um, once that, once I get those animals paired up and things like that, um, pretty much the only other species uh, that I'd like to keep, uh, would be, I'd like to get back into shots whip snakes. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with those. They're, they're central Texas, mm-hmm. uh, but they're pretty similar to your Ruthvens there. Uh, they got a really nice, um, orange chin. They can kind of get some nice blues in them, uh, down in South Texas. Uh, really, really pretty beautiful snakes there. Uh, I had a uh, Central Texas whip snake as well. Uh, that's Mascophus tanius uh, giardi, uh, subspecies of that uh, striped whip snake. There, one of the prettiest animals that I've seen in my entire life. They've got really nice black and gray uh, colors with a really, really excellent pattern there, and then they've got that beautiful pink tail that all of your uh, uh, tanius or uh, I'm pretty sure I'm butchering that that word there. I apologize. Uh, mm-hmm. All of the uh, striped whip snake kind of subspecies have um, it's really really pretty there uh, but that one seems to be pretty pretty tough to tough to find um, alive at least there's tons of uh, dor uh, examples there uh, and then just after hearing about the neotropical whip snakes or coach whips or whatnot the dementia various i think that's probably the uh, as far as mascophis goes that that's what i would like to add the the, the, the whips the neotropical whip snake there um, uh, hopefully a pair of Central Texas whip snakes and then a pair of uh, shots whip snakes. But outside of that, uh, I've been really digging the uh, the night snakes, the Hypsiglena. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a few. And I'm keeping uh, the Texas night snakes, the, 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 the Jani there, Jani Texana. And then I've, I recently picked up some desert night snakes as well, the Torcada there. Um, but there's, I, I like to add the San Diegos, uh, which are, uh, kind of on the smaller side as far as Hipsiglena goes, kind of on the, the of course, the, the San Diego area there along the coast. Uh, it's really, really, really neat, smaller uh, animals there that I just think are pretty cool. And then uh, the Mesa Verdes, because the Mesa Verdes in uh, Utah, they've got a little bit more of a, um, I guess the, the, the patterning is a little bit more bold because they've got kind of like a paler backdrop, um, which I just really like. Uh, so, yeah. Connor, I want to tell you, you're the first guest that, you know, I've listened to on the podcast that I've been Googling <laughs> so much during this conversation. Because yeah. every time you say a species, I'm like, what does that look like? What does that look like? <laughs> you know, what does that look like? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's pretty. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's pretty. So, yeah. know, I can say it really uh, opened my eyes to so much of uh, these particular uh, species. And, yeah. Uh, neat And uh, something else I'd like to do is uh, with with the people that I do um, talk with on the regular that are uh, (laughs) also passionate about uh, 
um, Coach Phipps and uh, Matt Phipps in general. Um, I've, I've, I've seen um, – if you guys are familiar with Brett Dunn and the Garter guy, and, yes. uh, mm-hmm. Brett Dunn and uh, Rob Shea, they're doing a lot yeah. of like uh, garter snake breeding collaboration projects to help kind of get uh, just better genes in the hobby and things like that. Uh, but I'd like to see something similar to Mascophis. I know it would be a little bit tougher with them being a little bit more uh, anxious um, as far as the, the moving around and things like that. Um, but William and I have been talking about setting up something for uh, our Pisces because uh, we, we both keep those. And I'd like to see a little bit of a uh, kind of collaboration there with some of us that have lone animals, you know, that uh, don't necessarily have a mate that is owned by us, you know, but we can kind mm-hmm. of uh, just work together to establish these species. You know, I think that, 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 that that's important because um, I'm kind of limited, yeah. I guess, in my case. Like I can't produce enough. Coach whips for everyone that wants a coach whip. I can't produce enough. As much as I would love to produce enough uh, Sonoran whip snakes, you know, for the hobby, uh, I, I I can't do that on my own. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I'm very interested in the Hipsaglina. Uh, we'll we'll definitely be having you back on if if you'll if you'll take the invitation to talk about them specifically. Uh, yeah, definitely. They're they're a lot of fun. Yeah, they're also a dipsadid, so they're in that group that I am a little partial to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Okay. Well, well, this has been um, fantastic, Connor. We we always ask our guests. This is kind of Matt's tradition. So while Matt's like living it up down in Florida, and uh, Clint and I are doing the Lord's work with this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I feel like I should bark or something just to yeah. make it feel like Matt's in the room. You know? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, we need, we need Cujo in the background going nuts. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, uh, what do you think – what direction do you think herpetoculture is going in? Do you, do you like the direction it's going in? Do you not like the direction? Do you, do you think we're kind of heading towards a, a, a united front or this kind of niche approach where you we have our silos is okay, it's – divisive just kind of you know, talk about this from the perspective of uh, a young person in the hobby who's doing great things yeah uh well first thank you for that compliment i, I appreciate that I just i don't feel like i'm very like, like i'm doing a whole lot i'm just kind of keeping what i like and just oh you're doing more than you know <laughs> it, it, it's cool that people people like what i'm doing so that, that that's mm-hmm. awesome um anyway so as far as like the hobby as a whole um, and being kind of, I guess, compared to other people a little bit newer, I guess I've only been keeping snakes for about seven years now. Um, I think, um, there were some good things that came out of that COVID break, like these podcasts and things like that yep. kind of, um, opened up or made me aware of other keepers that are like super niche focused like I am now. Um, and I think it's great that we're, um, working with some of these more um, underrated species and things like that, uh, and actively trying to produce these in captivity and things like that. But also, like, you got to think with that, like, something that I've kind of been thinking about recently is, like, if I breed these, uh, or if I get successful eggs with these uh, red racers, these Pisces, you know, like, what is, mm-hmm. what is the market going to be like with that? How many responsible keepers are there out there? Um, they're going to be able to do these guys justice. Um, should I be able to offer 
babies out to people and I don't just decide to keep everything for myself because that's what I tend to do. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so that's definitely something that we need to think about uh, with some of these more uncommon things and stuff like that. But I think, I think um, the podcast have been great kind of uh, helping reinforce some of those values into like ethical keeping and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that I definitely hate seeing are uh, just in a lot. I'm sure you guys have the same thing with these local Facebook groups when there's a, a reptile expo, you know, and then a month later, everybody's just trying to rehome like whatever, uh, yeah, whatever morph or whatever came in or whatever. I, I don't know. Um, just impulse buys kind of suck, but I, I, I'd like to see, um, I forget what podcast I was listening to. I'm, that's kind of what I do whenever I'm at the zoo because I'm just in a building by myself with 200 snakes. Yeah. Um, but um, one of the podcasts I was listening to, uh, this, this guy was talking about how, uh, I think it was like breeding chameleons or something like that. Like he would mm-hmm. take an entire setup with his adult chameleon in there uh, and just have that on his table to show like, this is what you need to get. Um, this is what you should expect, you know, and here's some photos of like other animals in my collection, how I keep, keep these guys, things like that. And like have like actual, um, just like a general caravan or something there available on the table. So people know what they're getting into, you know? Um, yeah. I think that would be something really awesome to see. Um, and if, if I produce enough to be able to vend at a show, uh, I would like to kind of, kind of do something similar to that. Obviously I can't bring a six foot PVC enclosure in there. Um, but I can bring kind of an active display and kind of help people uh, with questions and things like that. But um, yeah, I think that that would, that would be pretty important. And then just kind of with some of these more niche things, just don't be a, an asshole. Hopefully I can, that, I, I, don't, don't be a jerk, you know, uh, but just kind of vet people a little bit more um, so that these animals end up in with, with people that will truly care about them, you know, not just stick them in like a plastic tub or something like that you know no that's that's fantastic answer to that and then we didn't even get to talk about your job at the zoo i mean it really must suck to have to spend three days a week (laughs) working with louisiana pine snakes i mean geez yeah it's a lot of fun (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah congrats thankfully uh yeah yeah thankfully the adults are in brumation so there's not as much uh poop painting that I have to deal with, um, but that's going to change in a couple of weeks. Uh, oh, hell yeah. Head printing and stuff. But uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so it's fun. All righty. Well, if um, people want to find out what's going on in your world and, and kind of keep updated on your various projects, how do you recommend people get a hold of you? Yeah. So um, don't be afraid to reach out. Uh, try and answer as many questions as I can, just given uh, my, my work schedule and things like that. Um, you can find me on Instagram at naturalist herps, all one word, no spaces there. Just look up Connor Wardle and you'll see naturalist herps there as well. Uh, you can find me on YouTube, that same, just Connor Wardle there, and you'll find me on YouTube. I've got a bunch of different care guides uh, on some of the more niche things that I keep. Um, and then Facebook as well, you know, just, just Connor Wardle there as well. I'm in a few different Facebook groups. Uh, if you want to find more specifically with Mascophis, uh, I've got two groups. Uh, one of those is the Coach Whips, Whip Snakes, and Racers uh, Facebook group, as well as the Locality uh, Mascophis and Kaluber uh, group on Facebook as well. Um, those would be the best spots for those. Um, and yeah, like I said, I mean, reach out. Uh, I feel like I'm a pretty 
friendly person or try to be a friendly person yeah. and uh, just let me know. I'd be happy to uh, answer any questions you guys may have. All righty. And if you want to find me, uh, Dr. Crawdad on Instagram, Zach Lokman on Facebook, look me up online. If you uh, want to fire off an email and go old school, which several people have done in the past couple months, um, my perpetual pleading for people to reach out about graduate school is starting to pay off. I've had quite a few people reach out in the, uh, in the past couple months, and some are committing in, in the um, Applied Herpetology and Herpeticulture Lab at West Liberty University is about to explode. Um, the crayfish students are kind of like, what about us, Dad? <laughs> I'm the only person I know of who has two labs because um, I'm not a masochist at all. So, but, you know, it's not work if you're having fun. So, and working with the students is absolutely the best part of my, my day, unequivocally. Sitting in the meetings with the adults, we're not going to talk about that because uh, this is supposed to be fun. So, yeah, reach out. Uh, please do. I've got – we have people working now with a bunch of indigo snake projects, false water cobra projects, uh, dart frog projects now. Uh, we're working with Josh's frogs on um, and then a bunch of other stuff. So that's me. Clint, if people want to find you, where do they go? Right on Facebook, I am Clint Bartley. Uh, we also have our Metazotics Facebook page. That's M-E-T-A-Z-O-T-I-C-S. On Instagram, we're Metazotics LLC. And if you ever happen to be in southern Indiana, come by the shop. Come visit us. Heck yeah. 520 West Lincoln Avenue, Chandler, Indiana. Yes. And so with that... This has been another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. We are happy to be part of the Morelia Python Network. And whatever time of day or night you are listening to this, I hope everything's going well in your world. Have a great one. Bye.